0: Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we did a Theology Explainer episode on the Trinity. So, since it's been a minute, I want to remind you of where we are in the book of Luke. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist. We talked about his humility and how he understood the spotlight was always going to be on Jesus. And that is exactly where the spotlight was supposed to be. But in John's story, there's another man. There's another figure that runs in stark contrast of John, and his name is Herod. We see that Herod was selfish, he was greedy, he was evil, he was perverse, he was a lot of things. And he, so very clearly, wanted the spotlight on himself. So between John and Herod, we see two men who made two different life choices that reflects on what they wanted their life to look like. So we have the choice. Do we want our life to be a spotlight aimed at Jesus, or do we want the spotlight on ourselves? Who are we going to call Lord? So now that we've covered all that fun stuff, let's get into Luke chapter 3, starting in verses 21 and 22. Quote, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. End quote. When Jesus was baptized, it was a big deal. The heavens opened up. The Holy Spirit took on the form that was like a dove. The Father's voice boomed from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father was declaring over the Son His identity. That Jesus is His Son. That Jesus is His beloved Son. That He is well pleased with Him. The Father adores the Son, and He makes that so crystal clear. This is key as we discuss chapter 4 today. The Father has declared His love for the Son. That is the true identity of Jesus. But look what Luke records next, verse 23. Quote, Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Quote. Now, verses 24 through 38 list out the supposed genealogy of Jesus. I love you so much, so I am not going to make you listen to me mispronounce and really butcher the majority of 70 plus names. The ESV has the words, as was supposed, in parentheses. The Christian Standard Bible put it as, quote, and was thought to be the son of Joseph, End quote. The point Luke is making here is who Jesus really is. We go from the father declaring, you are my beloved son, to Luke giving the genealogy of what everyone else thought at the time. He is giving us the difference between what is true and what is assumed. Now remember, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which means Joseph had no part in it. Luke is reminding Theophilus, his original audience, of this truth in a subtle way. So, Luke 3, 21-38 is all about the real identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God, not Joseph. That is going to be so important as we move along. We are now moving into chapter 4. Now, today's passage is a classic example of chapter divisions not always being a friend. Chapter divisions were put in around the year 1200, which means they were added well over 1100 years after the Bible was written. They are meant to be helpful, and honestly, they are. Can you imagine trying to describe where John 3.16 is without the 3 and the 16, right? They are helpful, but sometimes they divide that which was not meant to be divided. I think today's passage is a great example of that. The end of chapter 3 going into the beginning of chapter 4 should definitely be kept together. I think you'll come to agree with me as we move along. So now Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So, after this incredible scene of the heavens opening up, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Why was he there? To be tempted by Satan himself. Why the wilderness then? Well, perhaps, because it was in the wilderness where the people of God, the nation of Israel, had failed over and over and over. If a temptation came, they fell to it. So the Son of God would have victory where the people of God had failed. There's also a parallel here. We see Jesus there for 40 days. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness 40 years. What we do know is that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus there. That means that this encounter between Jesus and Satan, it was ordained by God. It was his plan. So, 40 days have gone by with Jesus not even having a snack. Some get cranky when 40 minutes go by and there have been no snacks. 40 days without food makes me think he was hungry might be the biggest understatement in the whole Bible. Can you even imagine the physical, the emotional, the mental weakness of going 40 days without food? If there was ever a time when Jesus would have been vulnerable, it has to be this moment, right? If there was ever a time that Jesus would would be vulnerable. It would be here. It would be now. This would be like going into a fight, not with one hand tied behind your back, but like both hands tied behind your back and maybe a stumped toe. I don't know. He is intentionally being vulnerable in this encounter. So let's move to round one, starting in verse three. Quote, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Quote. While Jesus feels the weakness of extreme hunger, Satan pops in and he's like, You know what sounds good right about now? Bread. You know? If you are the son of God, you could tell a stone to become a loaf of bread, and it would. Now, when we're talking about wilderness here, we're talking about a place that would have had stones all over the place. We're not talking about this like grassy field. We are talking about rocks and stones and emptiness all over the place. But if you were hungry, and if you had the power to turn rocks into bread, what you would be seeing in that moment is a potential all-you-can-eat buffet. Did you see how Satan phrased the question? He is questioning the identity of Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God. Now, I know you remember, I made a big point about it. The heavens opened up, the Father declared, the genealogy went down. He said, the supposed son of Joseph. We know who Jesus is, but we're going to have to come back to this later in the passage. The response Jesus gives him is that man shall not live by bread alone. I know that may sound a little bit odd, but he is referencing Deuteronomy chapter eight. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, we see that Israel has been in the wilderness for forty years. Part of this was out of punishment and their inability to obey the Lord. Part of it was part of it was testing to know what was in their heart. Here, Jesus is being tested. When the people of Israel were tested in the wilderness, they failed. Their testing was to see, will you choose your desire for idols or... God. They chose idols. They were a broken record of bad choices. Now that Jesus is being tested, he is being tempted in the wilderness, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And if we finish the quote that he is referencing in Deuteronomy 8, it finishes like, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is letting Satan know. He is choosing the Father over this desire he has in this moment. He is choosing his relationship with the Father over his need to have this hunger satisfied. He is choosing the Father over instant gratification. Jesus is not about to let a momentary weakness mess up his priorities. He's choosing what he wants most over what he may want in that moment. So often our sin comes from wanting something now instead of trusting God's plan and provision for our life. So if we want to resist falling for instant gratification, we have to take that temptation, give an honest look and say, is this temptation asking me to give up what I want most for what I want now? Listen, we have to take every thought captive. We have to be intentional with fighting temptation. We can't let these things just wash over us. When these choices come to us, we have to hit the pause button. We have to look at it. We have to reflect. We have to ask questions like, is this asking me? To give up what I want most over what I want in this moment, some desire that we feel like has to be satisfied. Be intentional, take the thought captive, and knowing because Jesus was victorious, we had the power to be victorious in those fights. Now we are moving on to round two and verse five. Quote, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, End quote. I'm not totally sure how this scene works. Maybe somehow Satan was able to supernaturally have this big like projection screen to show all the kingdoms of the earth. However it went down, Satan shows Jesus all the human power and glory in the world and says, it's yours if you worship me. John 12, 31 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. But Jesus also calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. So one general rule of thumb when it comes to Satan is if he is speaking or communicating in any way, he is probably lying. So right here, he is probably lying. Though Satan may talk a big game, he doesn't have the authority to give the kingdoms to anyone, and he is certainly not worthy of worship. Plus, after the work Jesus would do on earth, after he is crucified, after he raises from the dead, after he ascends into heaven, he will sit down at the right hand of the Father and he will have his rule over all creation. So, ruling over everything is coming to Jesus anyway. So, what temptation is this really? I mean, I think most of us can probably agree, worshiping Satan is not the best idea, right? It's probably a no-good, terrible idea. Why is this a temptation if Jesus is going to rule anyways? Well, Satan is crafty. His game plan was for Jesus to bypass the cross. If Jesus worshiped Satan, then he would have given him all the kingdoms of the earth without having to die on the cross. That would mean our sins would have never been paid for. That means every single human being would be sentenced to hell for all eternity. There would be no hope, no chance of redemption. It's just hell forever for everyone. It's kind of a gloomy picture. By doing this, it would take glory from the Father. Jesus would have disobeyed the Father. Satan wanted Jesus to be all about himself. He wanted Jesus to be as prideful as Satan is prideful. Jesus could have gained the whole world, but he would have lost fellowship with the Father. What he could lose was more precious to him than what he could gain. And when you're in temptations, consider both what you might lose and who you might hurt. There's a trend with these temptations that I hope you're catching on to. When it comes to battling temptation, we ask the question, what do you want most? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that if Jesus is my greatest treasure, what in the world could Satan tempt me with? Jesus did not enjoy the cross. He was not looking forward to the cross. In fact, Hebrews 12, 2 says, quote, "...looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who..." for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God End quote. "Jesus endured the cross he despised the shame why for the joy set before him" Jesus lived in a way that reflected his priorities. He beat temptation. He looked to the joy he wanted most, and that allowed him to endure what he despised. He wasn't looking for immediate relief or immediate satisfaction because he knew the joy he was looking forward to was greater than any instant gratification the devil could bring in his path. Again, He was looking to what he wanted most and was letting that overshadow what he may have wanted in the moment. So many of us want to get out of what we despise. We want that longing, that desire to be satisfied now. And in that longing, we can trip up we can sin, we can give in to the temptations because we are not looking to the joy before us. We are not looking to the promises set before us. We are not looking to what our greatest treasure should be. Look, what are your priorities? What do you treasure? How do you rank those things? And do your choices reflect those rankings, those priorities? You can say that God is number one in your life, but if you're choosing everything in your life over Him, then that means that statement is a lie. Maybe it's a lie to yourself more than anyone else. Let's move on to round three, starting in verse nine. Quote, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. End quote. Before we really dive into this temptation, I want to stress something to you. Satan is quoting Bible verses. He is taking verses out of context and throwing them at Jesus. Now, this highlights for us the need, the desperate, desperate need for us to spend enough time in the word of God that we can be familiar enough with his word so that when things are said wrongly and out of context, when people twist what God has said, we will be so saturated with truth that we can recognize, hey, that's not right. That's not what God has said. That's not what that means right there. The number of verses and passages that are twisted, the manner in which they're twisted, it's so innumerable, right? So the point is to not know every single heresy that comes up. The point is to know the Word and what God has said so closely, so intimately, that when something is counterfeit, we can recognize it. That when anything departs from the left or from the right, we will be able to recognize, hey, that's not it. And since none of that was in my notes, I guess that part is free, so we're going to move on with this temptation. Admittedly, this temptation of Satan being like, hey Jesus, nosedive from the top of the temple, is a little harder for us to understand. Sure, we can understand wanting bread, or really any carb, when you're hungry. We can understand the temptation of ruling the world, but what is so tempting about jumping off something so super high? To understand this, we have to think about where Satan has taken Jesus. The highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the holy city for the Jews. If anything of religious importance was going to happen, it was going to happen in Jerusalem. The temple was the center of the entire Jewish faith. That's where they made sacrifices. That's where they thought they could be made right with God. There would have been tons of people around no matter what time of day it was. In Jesus' ministry, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he raised the dead, he taught people about the kingdom of God. A lot of religious leaders did not agree with all Jesus said. A lot of people believed in him, but many did not. And a lot of people believed in him in the wrong ways, like they misunderstood who he was or what he was doing. So what would jumping off the pinnacle of the temple do for Jesus? Can you imagine the scene this would have created? A man seemingly suicidal at the pinnacle of the temple. Everyone wondering, how did he get up there? Then him leaping off, and as he drew closer and closer to the ground, only to have these awe-inspiring bright angels catch him and gently lower him to the ground? That would be insane. I think people would have dropped to their knees and they would have worshipped right there. At the very least, it gave him validation that he is who he says he is. Do you know how much easier that would have made his life? Instead of people fighting him the whole time, people conspiring against him every step of the way, or having to run for his life on occasion, wherever he went, people would be like, oh, that's the man the angels caught. People would fall down before him. They would hang on every word he said. They would worship him. Jesus did not come to earth to protect himself, right? He didn't come here for his own benefit. He came to save sinners. He came to save you. He came to save me. But did you notice... Once again, how Satan started this temptation. He said, if you are the Son of God. Remember, he said that before. We started in chapter 3 so that we could read the words of the Father booming from the skies. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And to that, Satan says, if you are the Son of God. At its core, it sounds like a familiar tactic. It sounds a whole lot like the tactic he used on Adam and Eve. Do you remember the garden? When he slithered on up to them, he asked the question, did God actually say? For Jesus, did God actually say you are his beloved son? Did God actually say he's pleased with you? If you are the son of God, then prove it. What Satan was getting at in the garden is the same thing that he was getting at with Jesus. He wanted them to think God was somehow holding back from them, that there was some good that he was not letting them have. In the garden, you need the fruit from that awesome tree, but God won't let you have it. In the wilderness, you need bread, but God has just given you a bunch of rocks. And you need to be recognized, but he won't let you take any credit. When Adam and Eve were tempted, they stopped seeing God as father and started seeing God as their rival. They thought they would have more to gain by disobeying God than obeying God. Jesus understood who he is, who the Father is. The voice of the Father was louder than the voice of the enemy. So often, don't we get that flipped? Don't we so often hear the voice of the enemy above the voice of the Father? Bottom line, here we go. When we look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Christian, believer, beloved child of God, remember who God has declared you to be. Remember how He has redeemed your life, how He has made you a new creation. And in doing so, He has transformed what your priorities and your pursuits should look like. So listen, like Jesus looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith, Let's look to what we want most over what we want right now. Let's look for how we can keep the spotlight on Him and not on us. Let's look to how God satisfies the deepest longings of our heart that no temptation Satan brings can satisfy. Look, He's going to say, You need this, you need that, your life won't be complete without this other thing, this person, this job, this whatever. When the truth is, all of the things he brings will not satisfy. Jesus understood it in the wilderness. The Father was his greatest need. It wasn't going to be food. It wasn't going to be recognition. It wasn't going to be power. It was going to be the Father. When temptation comes up, look to Jesus. He is your greatest treasure. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt. At steadfastpodcast